This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to The Edition. Each week we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Katie Balls. This week... Should animal lives be considered as valuable as human lives? But also discuss whether the government's proposed tax reform solved the crisis in social care. And finally, what are the benefits of having godparents in this secular age? First up, it's often said that Britain is a country of animal lovers, but have we taken it too far? Penn Farling's evacuation has shown how some people value animal lives more than human ones. William Moore writes our cover piece this week, arguing that the public outcry is emblematic of our faith-like approach to animal rights in Britain. He joins me now with the Financial Times' Henry Mance, author of How to Love Animals. Will, so what do you mean when you say that our love for animals can be religious? Well, we care about animals very much in this country. I also say in the piece that the reason politicians always say it's a it's a cliche for them to say we are a nation of animal lovers but the reason they say it is because it is true and it's so uncontroversial i mean we all know this is true and i also think that is a that's a good thing it's very good that this country has high standards of animal welfare and it's very good to love and care for animals but love can warp it can go wrong you can lose perspective and what I'm worried about, uh, as I say in the piece, is that we now have more and more people who, according to polling, a growing minority, maybe as much as 40% of the public, who now believe that animal life is equal in worth to human life. And that, for me, is love that has gone wrong. It's taken a, a step into territory that I think is pretty worrying. Henry, one of the examples that Will cites in his piece, also being covered widely, is that of Penn Farling's evacuation efforts in Afghanistan, known as Operation Ark. So this was an effort to get, I think, around 200 cats and dogs out. In the end, the animals made it back, but his Afghan staff did not. What did you make of it? Yeah, I think on the face of it, it would be pretty callous. I think, think unacceptable to most people if animal lives had been put on human lives. I mean, if bluntly animals had been put on the plane and, and humans hadn't. But I kind of think that wasn't what happened. I sort of took some lead from Richard Dannett, the former army officer, who said it's unlikely to have had an effect on the evacuation. I mean, the fact is the Taliban were happy for the dogs and, and cats to leave Kabul in a way that they weren't happy for Afghan nationals to leave. So I don't think it was a simple one in over the other. But I think it was instructive. And actually, psychologists have done these experiments and asked people and thought experiments about what they would save, whether you would rather save 100 dogs or one human. A majority of people say they would, they would save the human, but a significant minority of people say they would save the 100 dogs. And actually, if it's your dog that we're talking about, then quite a lot of people would save their dog. I think it's around 40% in one experiment would save their dog over the life of a foreign tourist. People really do care about their dogs. Yes, and, and my point about Operation Ark, it was a point about the public perception of it. For a lot of the British public back home, it was the cats and the dogs that really mattered. That's why they got so worked up about it. I mean, I thought the most telling bit of the whole sort of fiasco around Operation Ark was the leaked voicemail message from Penn Farthing to that government aide, where you know, he was very emotional and stressed. He said 
in it that he could destroy this government aid by turning the country against him. And the thing is, I think he's probably right. I mean, I think there were enough of the public who really were getting so worked up about this. They didn't even need him to give the sort of uh, command to attack. There are a lot of people already sending a lot of death threats, phone calls, abuse to people involved in the evacuation and, and the planning of the evacuation. And so that's the sort of point I was trying to make, really. It's not so much about Operation Arc, it's about what it has revealed about the public and their perception of it. And on that, Will, you mentioned in your piece the LBC caller, which I think captures what you're talking about. Can you tell us what happened? Well, so she calls up LBC, this woman, puts it in pretty black and white terms. She says, a life is a life. And then she's asked, so what you're saying is, if it's it's not an interpreter, then get a dog on the plane instead. And, And she says, yes. I mean, that is her answer. And you could say, okay, that's just one member of the public. Maybe she's very sort of radical. But then there is that YouGov polling as well, which says that 40% of the public, when they're asked, say that human life is equal to animal life, which is the a life is a life philosophy, really. Now, how many of them actually live like that in their day-to-day life is another question. I mean, I think it's something, Henry, you probably know these statistics better than I do, but is it about 15% of the public's vegetarian or 20 or about around that? No, fewer than 5%. Fewer than 5%. Okay, so by that logic, there is now a sizable portion of the public, 40% of the public, who are pretty okay with cannibalism. I mean, if that's how they view it. So I don't know how many people actually think through or live by what it is they're saying when they're polled on this question. But even the fact that it's shifting in this direction, and I think it's doing so quite quickly, I think is pretty significant. As I said at the beginning, I do think it is worrying. And the reason I think it's worrying is because I think it's moments like Operation Arc, where we learn a lot about priorities, public ideas of priorities, even if I know, I know the Operation Arc supporters say that there was, there was, there was no prioritisation of pets over people. But for a lot of the public, that's how they saw it, and they were okay with that. Henry, you've written a book saying we should think more about animals and the consequences of our actions. So I wonder, how do you view this shift that we're seeing, I suppose, value animal lives versus human lives? Yeah, I think it's fascinating. On the one hand, it's a very recent thing. And on the other hand, actually, Britain's position as a genuine world leader on animal welfare and thinking about animals it stretches back 200 years or, or, or more. The first real worry was when people thought that the government was stripping away the legal protection for animals around sentience, leading to petitions, and then a whole fiasco over whether Theresa May wanted to bring back fox hunting or at least give a free vote on it if she won the 2017 election. And so you saw it crop up, but really anyone who saw the popularity of Larry the Cat could see where things were going. The truth is that very few people, when it came to a direct choice between a person and an animal, would choose the animal. I think. And I think that YouGov polling is slightly misleading about what people actually would do, as, as, as Will points out. In practice, indirectly, we of course all put the lives of animals ahead of humans all the time because we spend enormous amounts, billions on our pets, which we don't give to charities that are fighting malaria and fighting other diseases around the world. So we all decide implicitly with our wallets that we care more about animals. What I would like is for us to sort of stop being very sentimental about animals in an unfocused way, which leads us to get really worked up about particular cases like Cecil the lion who was killed in Southern Africa, about Marius the giraffe who was killed at a Copenhagen zoo, and indeed about sort of Geronimo the alpaca who seems to have been carrying bovine tuberculosis and therefore a risk to the livestock population. I think sort of seeing the natural world as a, as a series of individual tragedies can really mislead us. And I think what we have to think about more is our, is our broader relationship. And look, Geronimo is being killed, but so are 14 million sheep a year. And we're losing species and we're losing wild spaces. And 
we have an intensive farming system where you know chickens have been bred well beyond their biological limits. And I think those are the issues we should focus on. And instead, I think we're still focused on what we see as individual cases of cruelty. And I think those can mislead us and can lead to quite strange outcomes. Well, do you agree with that? You talk about almost this hierarchy of cuteness in your piece. I think people do get very, and social media, of course, plays a big part in this. It's very, very easy to get very caught up on the cute cases, the, the animals that how get the most clicks on social media and, and to be outraged about that. And I certainly am in favour of some of those examples you mentioned about helping with animal welfare. The thing to be wary of, in my mind, is the difference, and I think it's a crucial one, between wanting good animal welfare and then the jump from that to saying that animals have rights in the same way as humans have rights. That is where, especially when it comes to policy, I would want to be very careful. I mean, you quote the philosopher Peter Singer, and I think you, I mean, you're um, absolutely fair to him. And I think, I mean, he's written the most influential book on, on animal interests, not animal rights per se, because he takes a utilitarian p- approach. But I think he would be absolutely clear that in nearly all cases, an animal life is not worth as much as a human life. He is controversial because he says... For example, if you had a disabled or brain-dead person in a, in a burning house and you also had an animal without any physical disabilities, it might be justifiable to rescue the animal. I would not go that far, but I think Peter Singer, for me, his real message, A, you should help other people you can. So he's very much in favour of giving a large proportion of your income. He gives 40% to charity. And the, I think the other point he's saying is that he, he makes clearly is when people came up to him, especially in the 70s, and said, why are you caring about animals when there are all these human issues? He would say, well, look, what's stopping you caring about both? And so what's stopping you opting out of factory farm chicken as well as helping refugees? There isn't an answer to that. I, think. I mean, that is true. But then there are these examples like Operation Arc, there are these moments, they are extreme moments because of the time pressure of them. But there are moments at which these moral questions do suddenly have to have an answer in terms of the prioritization. So you say, oh, yes, you can care about both. You can care both about refugees and animals, of course. But then there are moments where you just have us, you do have a sort of choice to make. I mean, another example I make in the piece is Baroness Deitch has pointed out when it comes to manufacturing COVID vaccines that relied upon experimentation on primates, on very, very advanced animals, and on mice and ferrets. There's a time pressure to that because COVID in many ways is a race against time. It's the vaccines versus the virus. If we hadn't manufactured those vaccines by now, we would all still be in full lockdown and far more people would have died. It's estimated to be as many as 100,000 more people would have died. But if we had delayed the manufacturing of those vaccines because we're worried about the sentience or the suffering of the primate in those early experiments, it would have had this effect on human life and, you know, in human dignity too. And you have people still in lockdown, which I mean, lockdown, I think, is an affront to human dignity. I mean, it may be very necessary when there's no vaccines. The point is, is that that's another example in my mind of where you have to make a choice. And just finally, we'll mention their sentience. Now, the Animal Sentience Bill is going through Parliament. Henry, you, you've been talking about a change in attitude, but it could be the case that quite soon it's not so much voluntary choice, but we might see some of this rebalancing of how we view animal rights come into force through law. Yeah, I don't think the sentience bill in itself changes huge amounts, but it's something that people, that, that politicians will be able to pin stuff on and it will lead to more thinking in this area and I think the way we kill lobsters may well be very problematic you know the government's indicated it will think about the type of breeds we use in chicken farms and other and also the use of cages in pig farms and indeed with chicken and eggs and I think those would be healthy developments we've seen sort of the phasing out of live animals in circuses 
we could have more attention on the animals kept in zoos. I think elephants don't really belong in zoos. Their size and their desire to migrate and to form large herds makes them impractical there. So I think there's lots of thinking you can do. And I think I'm proud of living in a country, actually, which is at the forefront of those things. It's nearly 200 years since the RSPCA was set up. You know, this is something that Britain has done well for a long, long time. Well, do you think the bill could have some unintended consequences? Well, I think it's possible. I mean, Henry is completely right that at the moment it's, it's, it's so vaguely drafted, we just don't know actually precisely what it's going to, to do and influence. It does not go as far as to put human lives as equal to animal lives. My worry is that it, it gives a sturdy foothold for those who do believe that and do want that. And at the moment, it's just so vaguely phrased that all it means is that a committee made up of whoever the environment secretary wants can report on and influence any legislation at all. And if there's people on that committee who believe, I would say, some pretty radical things, then we could start seeing a scenario where a lot of this becomes a lot more difficult. Thanks, Will and Henry. Next, for years, successive governments have struggled to find a long-term solution for social care. But Boris Johnson has plans to fund reform by proposing a new 1p tax on national insurance. In this week's issue, Kate Andrews argues that instead of solving the crisis in care, the plans will increase intergenerational unfairness. To discuss, she joins me now with Steve Webb, a pensions expert who was formerly a Lib Dem minister in the coalition. Kate, you've written this week about the government's plans for social care. They haven't been announced formally yet, but there have been plenty of leaks. So what do we expect them to be? It's been trailed for months now. And while it's thought that there are still debates happening behind the scenes that already NHS chiefs are saying it's not going to be enough money, the idea is going to be that the Conservatives are going to break their tax manifesto pledge and at least 1p will be added to national insurance to compensate, to bring in more funds for social care. The Prime Minister continues to be wedded to the Dilnot proposals from 2011, which would see quite a low cap put on what people would personally pay for their own care, and the rest is going to be made up through taxation. The Prime Minister thinks he's in an opportunity to reform social care, especially funding, in a way that his predecessors weren't, for several reasons. I mean, one is a a really harrowing one, the fact that at the height of the pandemic, we were all just witnessing the disaster that was taking place in care homes. About a third of COVID deaths took place amongst care home residents. So there is serious public appetite to fix social care, more so perhaps now than ever before. But the second is that they think that COVID has created a lot of opportunity to throw manifesto pledges out the window. What I question in my piece for The Spectator this week is whether or not people are actually going to get more for the tax money that is raised through adding a P onto national insurance. You would expect, if your taxes are going up, to have better access to your GP, better care for your elderly relatives. It's not at all obvious that any reforms have been announced that will actually improve the quality of social care. Steve, Boris Johnson's been saying he has a plan for social care ever since he entered Downing Street and stood on those steps. So if it is the Dillonot proposals, as Kate just outlined, combined with a national insurance rise, is that something that you think is sufficiently impressive for the time it's taken? I think it might solve one of the problems of social care, which is this risk that we all face of what Andrew Dillonot called catastrophic care costs at the end of our lives. So this is, you get something awful like dementia, which you live with for years, but you need a lot of care. And we all know, you know, a care home can cost up to £1,000 a week in some cases. So it doesn't take long to face these catastrophic costs. And Andrew Dillnott's argument was that in all other aspects of our life, we pool these catastrophic risks. We have car insurance, we have the NHS, we have home insurance. So we're not on the hook 
for the small risk of a massive cost. And that's what the deal not cap is about. It would stop anybody having to face these, you know, six figure bills at the end of their life. So I think that would solve or, or deal with, to some extent, one of the problems. But the pandemic has reminded us that the social care problem is much bigger. It's about the, the staff treating them properly, recruiting them. It's about our failure to do preventative work and help people not to need to go into care homes, the link with the NHS. It's a huge agenda and, and the care cap is just one small part of it. It's interesting hearing Steve there, Kate, talking about how in other areas we have insurance to deal with these levels of risk, because one thing I've heard from some Tory MPs who, I suppose, not convinced by this, let's put it mildly, is that they prefer an insurance system. Is that is that a viable alternative? Well, as I say in the piece, unfortunately, I don't think it is a viable alternative because in the UK to talk about any market mechanisms coming into healthcare is politically toxic. But I think it's a huge mistake not to be having these conversations. If you look at countries that have universal access to healthcare, like Germany and France, they do have mandatory social insurance to help deal with some of these later in life costs. And you know, I think Steve's completely right to highlight that it is there's something deeply unethical about the idea that if you are just unlucky with your health and you have that catastrophic diagnosis happen to you, that you should have to sell off all your assets at the end of life. You should be able to insure against that. It's not obvious to me that it's the taxpayer who should be insuring you against it, though, especially if they're looking at using national insurance to pay for this. That is a a tax that is paid by the working age population. So you're going to have younger people who've also been economically hit very hard by the pandemic, paying more tax for something that, you know, they're not going to benefit from immediately. And who knows if it's going to be there in 40 years time, because as I point out in the piece, this is just not sustainable. The working age population compared to the over 65s is dwindling. Uh, So, you know, I think a lot of young people, if they're asked to pay this, are going to say, well, it's not at all obvious that this is going to be there for me in the future. We should have systems where you can ensure having to sell off your assets at the end of life, towards the end of your life or after you pass away. I'm not at all convinced that the Dilnot proposals are the way to do it. I think, to be honest, it's quite lazy thinking from the government. We've just had a pandemic, a huge public health scare, well over 100,000 people dead. Are we sure that the reforms of 2011 are still fit for what we need today? No one's even having that debate. And Steve, why do you think that we are kind of back at that landmark review at the time in 2011? As Kate says, Boris Johnson keeps looking back at these. Do you think that is still the the most convincing solution to a very complex problem? Is that part of the reason we're going back to Dilnot? Because we've seen successive prime ministers look at fixing this, but it often becomes a political football just because it is such a difficult issue. It certainly brings together, I mean, what would be the phrase? Death and taxes. You know, some of the really most toxic topics all in one special measure. And so, you know, governments have proposed solutions to this. You know, the, the outgoing Labour government proposed some ideas and they were branded a death tax, you know. So I think doing this not in the heat of an election campaign has to be right. I mean, Boris Johnson shouldn't have lied on the steps of Downing Street when he said he had a plan because he obviously didn't have. But I think that the point about the Dilnot stuff is it's at least coherent and thought through. It's the answer to one part of the jigsaw. And I think, you know, people sometimes say, well, why should why should rich people benefit from a cap? You know, people with big houses and so on. But 
it's not rich people as a group. It's rich people or relatively wealthy people who have the catastrophic cost. And it's really not clear to me why those people should be paying the cost, you know, because it could be anybody. It could be you. It could be me. There's no way we can save the right amount because we have no idea if we'll get hit by a bus or live seven years in a care home. You know, we should be sharing this risk. Social insurance or private insurance is, is, is a mix, I think. And just one thing is prevention. I mentioned prevention. Nobody talks about prevention. You can stop people needing to go into care homes if you look after them better in their own home. You can enable them to be discharged from hospital back to their own home instead of into a care home if you have the system joined up. We would save a fortune if we focused on prevention. And one of the advantages of having an insurance model is private insurers would have an incentive to encourage us to look after ourselves, have adaptations to our houses. There's no prevention in the system and that's just not in anybody's interest. Kate, it looks as though Dilnot is coming. So are there any tweaks of what do you think at this point onwards? I mean, do you think the most regressive thing here is the national insurance rise? Well, I think there are quite a few things that are regressive about it. I think it's certainly where they're planning to tax national insurance, but also the concept that this will be inevitably a subsidy to some people who are very, very wealthy, who can afford it. And I will repeat that everybody should be able to insure against a catastrophic diagnosis. You know, I think home ownership in particular in the UK is so important to people. It's a cultural point as well as a financial one. And you should be able to pass on assets to your children that you've worked so hard to accumulate over your life. It is not obvious to me that this is the way to do it. I think it's a regressive way to do it. And we can look to European countries with universities universal access to healthcare that are are doing it, I think, in a much smarter way. I suppose one criticism you can make of the current plans is, and Steve has hinted at this as well, they're not real plans to reform social care. They're plans to reform the funding model. It is not obvious that this will add beds to care homes. It's not obvious that this will get you faster access to health professionals. It's not obvious that the quality of care, your treatment is going to improve. And let's not forget that it's going to be sold first and foremost as potentially up to £6 billion of money that's going to go to the NHS waiting list, then that will be transferred to pay for social care. If people see their taxes go up, and you know we now have five million plus on the NHS wait list in England. The health secretary thinks that could go up to 13 million people, goodness forbid. If they don't feel like they are getting that faster access, the prime minister is going to have to answer a lot of questions about why he broke, a conservative prime minister broke a pledge not to raise key taxes and why people aren't feeling the benefits of those tax rises. You know, If your taxes are going to go up, you're going to want a better service. Not at all obvious from his proposals that we've seen so far anyway. Let's see what they announce that people are actually going to feel those benefits and Steve just finally I wondered what you thought the biggest con of what's being proposed is do you think that it could be open to criticism that it exacerbates intergenerational unfairness it's a funny one because I do think that that grandchildren care about their grandparents um you know nobody cares about the social system social care system until they encounter it but when they do they really care so if you've got a young person who sees their grandparent you know not being properly looked after, unable to afford a, a nice care home or whatever, whatever it is, then I think that it's, it's not a battle between the generations in that kind of crude way. But I do agree with Kate, using a working age tax to pay for a service that's overwhelmingly going to benefit the retired population just seems perverse. At the very least, we should levy national insurance above pension age. You know, we've got a million people in work above pension age paying no national insurance on their wages. So if we did go down this route, we should certainly lift the age cap on national insurance. But national insurance is just a sort of sales job. You know, it's no more 
less tax than any other tax, to be honest. The irony is they think it sounds less because it's 1p for workers, 1p for firms. That's really 2p on the same pound of wages. So if you did it through income tax, it would be 2p. So it sounds lower. So, you know, there's an awful lot, shockingly, of spin in all of this. But but we do need more money in the health and care system. But it, it has got to be accompanied by reform and, in, as I say, prevention. Thank you, Kate and Steve. And finally, godparents. Although she never wanted children of her own, Fiona Manford writes in this week's Spectator that she knew she always wanted godchildren. But what role do godparents serve in a secular age? Fiona joins me now on the podcast, along with Mary Killen, the Spectator's dear Mary columnist. Fiona, why have you wanted to be a godparent from an early age? Well, I want always wanted to be a godparent because I have five godparents of my own, which is an above average number. You meant to have two of the same gender and one of the opposite gender, but my parents threw caution to the wind and gave me five. All my life, I've had lovely relationships with my with my godparents. Three of them I'm particularly close to. And it's been such an enriching part of my life. I don't have aunts and uncles. I've loved this. And my connection with my godparents is very strong. I, I had tea with two of them yesterday, in fact. And so I wanted to continue this bond into the future with my own godchildren. And Mary, what about you? How many godchildren do you have? And is it a similar type of arrangement than the one we just heard? Well, I've got nine godchildren. And one of them, it's rather poignant, he wrote to me, I knew him socially, but he wrote to me at Dear Mary saying, a beloved godmother has just died. Would it be acceptable for me to approach another adult to ask if she would step into the shoes of the much missed godmother? And I wrote back, yes, it would be fine. And so he said, in that case, dear Mary, please, will you accept the position? (laughs) So I became his godmother when he was about 14. Well, that's lovely. I know. (laughs) The thing about a godchild is that they don't hold you in contempt like your children do. So it's quite nice. I mean, not all the time, obviously, but, you know, they don't, they're not cross with you godchildren. Exactly what Mary's just said. I think what's so precious about this bond between godparents and godchildren is the very liminal nature, the liminality of it, because a godparent is an adult, an authority figure of sort, but not in the direct chain of command. So it's not a parent, it's not a teacher. So there's no scuffles about bedtime or maths homework or any of that nonsense. It's an adult who needs to be taken seriously. And I think it's a really useful conduit for children into the adult world, into the wider world. I think it's it's a very enriching relationship. I think it can really enhance God, people's social skills, young people's social skills and so on. Having to account for yourself to an adult who is fond of you and not in direct charge of you. I was never um, given a godparent, singular plural, by my parents. I'm learning a lot. You say in your piece it's become less about spiritual development, which it was traditionally for, and more about being a mentor. Is that something that you think's happened more recently or has it been a gradual process in terms of how we perceive godparents? I mean, I, I've have, I have five godparents. I have to say, 
I don't think any of them have probably set foot in church, I wouldn't say since the day of my christening, but I can think of a couple of other occasions. But I got given one Bible at my christening and I from my godfather, Jim, and that was lovely. And I, I still have that on the bookshelf just outside. I don't know when it was about spiritual development. That's never been part of my relationship with my godparents. So I'm sure it is for others, more religious families. It's a secular taking on of a religious tradition of bolstering the family and, and general support, not necessarily in supporting the child in renouncing the ways of the devil and so on, but just a general life enhancing boosting. That's certainly the relationship that I've always had with my godparents. Mary, what do you think are the criteria for a good godparent? What values do you try and live up to? Well, we have to remember that at the font, the godparents do promise to encourage and educate the child, well, in the Christian faith, in my case. I don't think any of my godparents and my children have done that. But no, I think it's become a sort of social thing. And it's really, sometimes people want to do it for status, other times to get money. There was one famous bachelor who who was well off, who had loads of godchildren. And as a tip, he couldn't remember their, their birthday, so he gave them all a present on his birthday, which was a good way of doing it. <laughs> I know that you don't have to be rich to be a godparent because you can be really useful, like taking the child to a dentist's appointment when the parents are busy. <clears throat> you can do useful things for them. You can have a quiet relationship with them. You can say things that they, parents can't say to them because they get defensive. I one of my godchildren was uh, I was staying with her and her family for the weekend and she didn't like the idea of having to do homework and I'm studying I'm doing an evening class in Portuguese so I took my homework and so we sat there very con- congenially the the my young goddaughter doing her French homework and I was doing my Portuguese and it was just coincidentally we were both learning about the weather so we had a good time we can we can tell you about the weather in Portuguese and French and it was very satisfying so I think that interaction in a way mum and dad could have made her and it would have been not so much fun but godmum sitting down doing her homework made it a different type of experience Mary, do you think there should be a limit on how many godparents a person can have? I know you have a very high number, but when I think I think of some of my friends, obviously there are some people that people clearly think will be very good godparents, whether that's because they're generous, have lots of sage advice or other. But there is a question about how much time you can really give your godchild if it's one of 15. I think that I tried to refuse my most recent two godchildren. In fact, they were sisters, but the mother was one of two girls who were always competitive. And she said, I want you to be godmother to both of them because otherwise one will be jealous of the other. Well, I said, I can't possibly take them on. I haven't got any money to give them and I've got too many other godchildren. And she said she wanted me anyway. On that basis, we proceeded. I have given them presents that other people haven't thought of. So they quite like me in some ways, but they'll probably be angry when they grow up that I'm not rich. My godchildren range in the age from 27. I was a gym slip godmother. I do want to emphasise that fact to two. And I'm close to godchildren now. Four is more than enough, spanning 25 years. However, there is one very good friend I have said that if in the future he and his wife should be in need of a godparent, I would do it because I can provide credentials, but I am essentially closed. It's difficult enough dealing with your immediate family 
unless maybe you live in London or something, then you're more useful as a godparent because you can escort them to things, can't you? But if you live in the middle of nowhere, what use are you in a way other than, well, I suppose you can turn up at events at their school or something and you can hand over cash and write to them. Some people do have close relationships with their godparents and they write to them. They're a backup parent, aren't they? They are. And I think can turn up wherever your godchildren live. What, what my goddaughter was just before her GCSEs was, was quite stressed and strained. So I turned up and took her out for dinner. I think, you know, that sort of thing. I think, I think like so much in life, it's about the turning up literally or metaphorically. And I think that's the strength of godparents turning up in person, turning up on the phone, by email, by, by text or whatever, being there, being present, knowing they're there. I think it's a bond that I have cherished always with my godparents and that as I say I had two, tea with two of them yesterday they're like my aunts and uncles and and it's a bond I have always cherished and always will. Now just finally you're both very in demand godparents clearly doing it right but you're both effective at saying that you're not really open for business when it comes to future offers so I just wondered from both of you what is the etiquette when someone comes to you now, I know, Mary, you might have to just say yes and ask you to be a godparent. Do you politely say no? Do people get offended? Or do you do referrals to other potential candidates? Let's set up a godparenting agency here. I'm spotting a niche in the market, Mary. Funny enough, somebody asked me about this in Dear Mary recently. I'm so worried that this awful person I know is going to ask me to be godmother to her child and I don't want to. What can I do? And the solution is to preempt it by saying, let's say the mother is called Julia. So you say, oh, I'm terribly worried Judith is going to ask me to be godmother to her child. And I'm going to have to say my hands are completely full. I can't do it. No offence. And then Julia doesn't feel paranoid when you say no to her as well. Very, very good tip. Fiona, what's your approach? Just I haven't. I have to say, I haven't turned down a godchild yet. I haven't, but, you know, I'm bracing myself. I am I am officially closed with one potential exception. So I haven't had to face that tricky thing of saying no, mercifully, <laughs> which is why I've got so many godchildren spanning a, a, a right, wide range of ages. Thank you, Fiona and Mary. And that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? You can read all the pieces featured on the show and much more. We have a notebook from Proulief, a diary from Andrew Basevich, and I interviewed Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary. You can pick up a subscription to the magazine if you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS, where you'll get 10 issues for £10 along with a free bottle of, you guessed it, PIMS. Thank you for listening and join us again next week.